What does it mean to be a U.S. American national who identifies as African American and gay? In this episode, Genovio shares with us what it was like growing up gay in Atlanta in the 90s and how his journey in coming to terms with his sexuality made him oblivious to issues around race and racism. His story is also about living in Japan, juggling his different identities, and coming to peace with himself. I'm Fumi, this is Hashigar Racism, and this is the story of Genovio. Genovio is U.S. American and identifies himself as African American. He was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, where he spent the first 18 years of his life. Genovio shares his first experience of othering. It revolved not around his race, but his sexuality. My first ex- experience with being othered happened in my history class in fourth grade. My history teacher, we were in between classes or something, and she asked all of us to draw a picture of ourselves. And so we were in class. I was sitting at a table with four, f- I think four people, and um, they were all friends of mine. And we all got to drawing pictures of ourselves. So we got a piece of paper and some crayons and, you know, everybody drew their, basically their face. And the idea was that once we did that, um, our teacher would hang the drawings of ourselves up on a kind of rope for all members of the class to see. And I'm not really sure what the purpose of this assignment was. I kind of thought to myself, looking back on it, maybe it's just a a way for us to sit down and and be quiet from being rowdy. But nevertheless, we all got to doing it. And I actually had drawn a picture of myself too, but everyone around me started pointing at my picture and laughing. And I didn't exactly understand why that was happening. And all of a sudden, my friends started saying, pointed at the picture and saying, you know, oh my God, that's so gay. And I had no idea what that word meant. I had never heard that word uttered before. And pretty soon, like a lot of people in my class had gathered around the table and were laughing at the picture that I drew of myself because the picture of myself, uh, to give you more clarity here, I had taken like every single color out of the crayon box and literally colored myself as the rainbow. (laughs) So... That's why they, I think, proceeded to say, oh my God, that was so gay. So of course, I felt like I was being teased and I started crying in the middle of class. And, you know, my, I think my homeroom teacher called my mom and my mom came and picked me up from school. And in the car, we were driving home and she asked me, this is pretty graphic, but I remember this. She was helping to like remove some type of zit that I had had on my body. And while she was doing that, she was telling me about what the word gay means. And once she explained it to me, she asked me if I had ever felt that way about other boys in my class. And instantly, I remember feeling that intuitively I knew the answer to that question, which was yes. But I also intuitively knew that this was something that I shouldn't be honest about with my mom. And I guess part of the reason I felt that way is because I was nervous about you losing the relationship. I felt like being gay was something that was negative or bad because I'd been teased about it, right, in class earlier in the day. And so to me, it seemed like it was a better idea for me to lie about it 
than to be honest about it. And I don't know if it's fair to say that I was consciously trying to lie or hide something from my mom, but I think it was more so out of fear that I didn't, and also just like I didn't even know what this word meant or what this concept was until this moment. And so it felt safer, I guess, for me to play along with what everyone expected me to be versus potentially something that could other me, so to speak. So that was my first introduction that I remember to my relationship with homosexuality and what the word gay means. Now, what I will say is that I think even within the Black community itself, sometimes I think there is actually an even stronger sense of othering towards LGBTQ communities compared to externally. And the reasons for that are quite complex because, you know, first of all, I think, you know, African Americans have very strong attachments to Christianity and to different elements of their faith. And that can drive a lot of the thinking. Secondly, I think to some extent, there is still a strong sense of what men and women should be or how they should act. I don't think this is the case any, anymore, by the way. I think as society's perceptions have changed, I think a lot of people's perceptions of this have changed. But at that time, you know, I did think that some of the same traditional norms about what defines masculinity, what defines femininity, were still very prominent even within the African-American community as well. And so when you think about how those two forces play into the impact on my relationship with my gay identity as someone that is Black, I think that was another layer of complexity. And then also, I think what I didn't realize, perhaps at the time being so young, is that the HIV AIDS epidemic was so rampant before I was born. And I think it even still was so the case after I was born. And it hurt the African-American community particularly hard compared to other types of gay communities. And a lot of that has to do with socioeconomics and also just plain racism as well. So that's where I would say I felt that my relationship with my race, there's been some interaction with that in my gay identity. And then even now today, there are many things I can talk about on that subject. You know, you see in this online dating world, you know, you do see that there are lots of people who feel that it's okay and feel very comfortable explicitly stating on their profiles what they like and what they don't like. And quite commonly, you see how that works with respect to race. People saying very clearly that they don't really want to date. And it's all kinds of things. You see things like, um, I'm not into Blacks. I'm not into Asians. I'm not into whites, you know, so I think I'm getting a little going on a tangent here a little bit. But, you know, over time, I think there is still some interplay between these different identities that I have. Genovio says that he was so caught up addressing his internal battle with his sexuality that he was blind to issues on racism around him. By the time I was in high school, right, there were two different versions of myself. Well, there was actually still one version of me, but I think I was pretending to be different people in different situations. And so I transferred schools, right? And in the process of transferring schools, there was a girl that I was dating. And we broke up in the course of that transition. 
And I suddenly was introduced. My, the first people that I knew in my new school were all girls. And they all just happened to be girls that a lot of guys in the class liked or found attractive. And so when I show up to school and I'm immediately in this friend group with all these girls and they're giving me all this attention and I'm already like the new kid on the block, people were like, who the hell is this dude, right? <laughs> and I think I immediately became a target from other guys who could somehow smell that I was gay. And I think very early on, that became something that was difficult for me in terms of making relationships with my male peers. So yeah, so that was one aspect to going into high school. But I also continued that, you know, I didn't feel that my high school was a safe space for me to come out and to try to make this a part of my identity. I just thought it was, you know, as we say in Japanese, just very mendoksai, like just bothersome to have to deal with this when I'm trying to go to college, right? I know I have to study really hard. I've got to do really well. I was really focused on achieving those goals. And I didn't want to deal with the internal work that maybe I could have done at that point in my life that would have made me had a more pleasant and healthy high school experience. So I continued the myth or tried to continue the myth. And, you know, I was like, girls were asking me, I was on homecoming court and people were asking me to go to proms with them. And that was always the worst. The worst was always like, proms or school dances or anything where romance was clearly the focus of the event itself. Those were always the hardest because I had no desire or expectation that I wanted to take things further with the women that I was choosing to be with in these situations. But at the same time, I was also taking advantage of that situation to protect myself. And that was something that I didn't feel good about either. But it was something that I did because, again, as I said earlier, at that point in my life, it was just about how can I, everyone has things about themselves that they have to hide and not everyone needs, maybe this isn't just something that people need to know about me, right? It doesn't change who I am. It doesn't change my goals. It doesn't change why we're friends. And so I treated it like that in a very ruthless way. And so through high school, I think I, I dealt with a lot of that pressure, more so than pressure around my race. Although I will say what's crazy is that during the Black Lives Matter movement, a bunch of Black students and other non-white students, I should say, from my school made an Instagram account and started posting about all the racist things that my high school had done. Things administrators had said, faculty had said other students had said to them, and the school came out in a publication and listed like, and this was like decades of racism that was institutionally fueled and ignored in some cases. And so I guess in my case, like I didn't directly experience any of that but it was there. So that was another element of what was going on that I was unaware of. And I guess for me, like I was so caught up in trying to hide the fact that I was gay that I didn't even realize some of these broader things that were happening. And I also think that I wasn't 
I really wasn't investing in my relationships either, but I, I didn't really see it that way at that time. After high school, Genovio moved to Japan to pursue his childhood dream, live and work in Japan. He said that it wasn't until then that he was able to come out to his family and friends about his sexuality. I was living in Japan. I was living in a place called Betbu Oita, which is, for people who don't know, it's a very small hot spring town of maybe a couple tens of thousands of people, if that really. And it's still very conservative part of Japan, relatively speaking. So, and I didn't have a community. I didn't have a support system. I didn't really speak Japanese super well, even though I'd been studying it. So during that time, I think I really had to focus on how am I going to make sure that I can live one of my life's dreams, which was to move to Japan and build a career here? And how can I do that if I haven't done the internal work to get past some of these insecurities that I have? Because people would come up to me in Japan just out of simple curiosity, simple curiosity. They'd want to know three main things. They'd want to know where are you from? What do you do here? And do you have a girlfriend? I constantly face that question from really men and women. But that last question was so challenging to answer. And it would always pain me that I would still, after having moved across the world to chase my dream and to be living it, to still be dragged down by this question. And I realized that if I'm going to be able to grow as a person and if I'm going to be able to become something else, you know, I cannot let society and what people think about me continue to slaughter me, continue to make me feel that I don't belong, that I'm not accepted. And these people are not trying to make me feel that way, right? But I know that what kind of society I'm living in, you know, I know the environments that I'm living in, I'm trying to build a support system, I'm trying to, to chase my goals. And when you don't feel like the external environment is safe enough to support your authenticity, then you're going to default to hiding it or to suppressing it. And so what really pushed me over the edge, in addition to those incidents, was thinking about the fact that, okay, like, Let's say, for example, that for some reason I die while I'm in Japan or my, something happens to my parents on the other side of the world and they never know this side about me. Am I going to regret that? You know, can I let people who are the closest to me in terms of who love me the most, who care about me the most, if I or one of them pass away and never know who I really am? I just felt that that was the most profound type of sadness that I could experience as a human being. And I basically had to come up with the courage to just reverse that, to just say that, you know, I'm going to be proud. I'm going to be courageous with who I am and try to deepen my relationships with the people who are closest to me so that I can evolve and so that I can grow. And luckily, I've had really positive reactions from those people. And that's really not true for, I would say, 
arguably a majority of the LGBTQ community. So I feel very lucky in that sense. Genovio reflects upon three different elements of his identity which are particularly salient in Japan. His nationality, race, and sexuality. And how he engages with people on all three fronts. There's three different elements, I would say, to my identity here in Japan. First and foremost, there's my nationality. Japanese culture is a very group-centered culture where there's a clear difference between people who are part of your in-group and people who are part of your out-group. And there are pros and cons to that. But, you know, I think the first thing that usually stands out in this context is, are you Japanese or not? And so I'm American. And so that's clearly the first point of division between who I am here and other people. Secondly, I think And very naturally, I think the question becomes about race, because people look at you and they quickly sort of decide what your racial complexion is based off the color of your skin. And in my case, that's kind of difficult to figure out for a lot of people, um, no matter where they are, what background they come from. And so I have to explain to people that I am Black or that I am African-American And usually in Japan, I get the reactions are like, it's like bewilderment almost because people here think that to be black, your skin color has to be the color black almost in order for you to be considered black. And so when I tell people that I am black, I have to usually explain to them that there are different shades of blackness that exist first. And secondly, I think it's important for people to understand that in the context of American history, there is a so legal and sociological definition to blackness too. Something that we learned about a lot growing up is the brown paper bag test. And what they used to do in American history to determine if you were black or not is they would hold a brown paper bag up to your skin. And if you were the same color or darker than the paper bag, you were considered black. And if you weren't, then you were considered white. And so I think there's also that sort of legal and sociological framework around race that has defined what race is in the U.S., And then, of course, the last piece, which, as we've discussed, was always been the most difficult, personally challenging piece for me, is being gay and coming out as being gay. And so I still have to be, well, maybe not so much now, but sometimes I use that part of my identity in a judicious sort of way. So I think that's a part of my identity that I will share with people depending on the context of the situation that I am in, because sometimes it's not necessarily necessary for me to come out and have to explain to people that I am gay. Just like I don't necessarily have to tell anyone that I'm Black. Just like I don't have to tell anyone that I'm American. But these are the three parts of my identity that are very different from what is considered the norm here in Japan where the majority of people are Japanese by blood. A majority of people in terms of their ethnicity are Japanese. 
And in terms of sexualities, you know, Japan is actually pretty diverse in terms of sexualities and it's becoming more so. But for the most part, I think that most people feel some sort of pressure to affiliate with being straight. So on all three of these dimensions, I'm very different from what the benchmark is in society. And in terms of interacting with people in Japan, it's not something where I am trying to shove these things into people's faces about myself, right? I'm trying to just be myself and to be judged by the content of my character rather than the color of my skin. But I'm very happy for people to, if they want, if they're curious and they want to know, to ask those kinds of questions. And so what I found to be very important and healthy is when people do want to know more about any one of those three parts of my identities, to not immediately approach the curiosity with antagonism or to approach their curiosity with some type of aggression, but rather to treat those types of moments and those interactions as opportunities to change people's perceptions or to deepen their knowledge. But, you know, still approach our relationship going forward in a constructive light or in a constructive way. I think that's really important to maintain that level of self-control and discipline, especially when you're in another culture where some of these ideas are not as talked about as often or they're just not as aware about those types of issues or don't have opportunities to discuss them. So, of course, there are certain lines that I that you feel people should or should definitely not cross. And I think those situations demand, you know, more legitimately aggressive or antagonistic responses. But on the most part, I think people have just been quite curious about my background and just want to understand, right? And so I want to sort of give them that understanding so that the next time they come into an interaction with someone similar to me, that they walk into it with less bias and more empathy or understanding. Genovio shares a conversation he had with one of his former bosses in 2015 about Ariana Miyamoto, the first hafe, a Japanese term referring to someone born of one ethnic Japanese parent and one non-Japanese ethnic parent, who won Miss Universe Japan and faced a backslash for not representing true Japanese beauty standards, quote-unquote. I asked him what he thought about her winning this contest. And he basically said to me that, you know, he doesn't really think that she represents Japanese beauty or traditional standards of Japanese beauty. And I sort of pushed him on this question to define that for me. And he basically said that she doesn't have traditional Japanese features and was really unwilling to be more direct about what he was trying to say. But his silence was speaking volumes in and of itself. And so, you know, I tried to push back and say, well, no, like, look, like she's a Japanese citizen, has a passport in Japan. She's lived in Japan her entire life. Her mom is Japanese. And obviously, I would like to think that you could agree that ethnic Japan has a very interesting history of what it means to be ethnically Japanese, and that doesn't always meant that 
both parents had to be Japanese um, in order for someone to be Japanese. But so in any case, I guess what I'm trying to go after here is that on the dimensions of nationality and race or ethnicity, here we are talking about someone who has just won this beauty contest in Japan who is Japanese and who speaks Japanese, who looks Japanese, and who culturally sounds Japanese when you speak to her. And yet people from within her own other Japanese people, she's faced a ton of discrimination and criticism online for winning this contest. And yet, I think, you know, like other Asian cultures or places in the world, people like to think that their society doesn't have a race problem. Or they like to think that their society doesn't have the same issues with otherness that happen in the U.S. And when things like this happen, all that comes to light and begs the question, is that really so? And, you know, racism has no socioeconomic class. In that sense, it's kind of like Corona in a way, because Corona doesn't care about what job you have. It doesn't care where you're from. It doesn't care who your friends are or anything about that, how healthy you are. And similarly, I think racism doesn't have that type of boundary either. It's a different type of virus that we spread towards each other. And it's incredibly difficult to, to stamp out. Genovio highlights the importance of self-reflection and self-work. He also points out that we might not be responsible for the way the world is, but that we are responsible, whether it stays that way. There is some part of your life where you have faced some kind of adversity, most likely. And if you don't have self-awareness to realize those moments that you have faced adversity in your own life, then it's going to be hard for you to recognize the legitimacy of other people's experiences who have faced different types of adversity, right? That's really a true starting point, I would say. So, you know, it's uncomfortable to do this work and to have these discussions with people in your life or with yourself, but we're finally at a place in our society where we can openly talk about these things out loud with each other. And that's really healthy for millions of people. And it's very uncomfortable for the other millions of people who have benefited from being in the majority for so long. And I guess the other thing I want to say too on this point as well is that it's really important for people in the majority to realize that minorities are not trying to blame people who are in the majority for why these problems exist, right? We're not trying to say that you are the reason that racism exists. You know, it's, I feel like there's like such a misperception about that from the majority standpoint when they say that, oh, we're being attacked for our beliefs or we're being attacked for, for example, for being white. And it's like, we're not necessarily attacking you or saying you are the problem. But you also have to recognize that you're part of a continuum of history where your role matters to changing the future of what racism is going to be. 
And so you have a unique position as someone who exists currently and who is alive now to reverse that narrative, knowing what you know about how racism has come about in society over hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years. And so I think all people who are in the minority really want to see from those in the majority is that they're willing to legitimize the experiences of people in the minority and figure out actions that they can take or things that they can learn to try and slowly change that dynamic. Against the background of his experiences, Genovio has a following to say on what he thinks it takes to be anti-racist. I think the most important thing in order to be anti-racist, I think people have to approach others first and foremost, just with love. You know, we're all the same human beings. We all have the same human capacity for understanding and for growth. And if we're ever going to learn how to be anti-racist, it has to start with at least loving thy neighbor, so to speak and being able to put yourself out of your own bias, suspend your own biases and perceptions, and really just try to see the best in that person and love them for the human that they're trying to be. I think another element to that too is, you know, we have to deprogram ourselves. And in order to deprogram ourselves, we actually have to put in the work to understand things that we've taken for granted for so long. And we have to be willing to believe that when people say they have faced racism or, you know, they have faced all these experiences where they have been treated differently for their race, we have to acknowledge that no one walks this earth and wants to be the victim of racism. No one wants to go around and be preaching that they're the subject of racist or that that person treated them racistly or this person tried to screw them over because they're anti-Black or anti-White or anti-Asian or whatever it may be. You know, none of us walk around wanting to be that victim. And so when people articulate that these are real challenges and real issues that we have to face, then we have to realize that we have to do the work to deprogram who we are, to deprogram our beliefs about racism. So I think if we can do those two things, and there's many more things that can be done, but I think those are two very important things that are necessary for us to get to a better place than we are now. You can find more information about the 2015 Miss Universe Japan backslash, as well as other articles, books, and videos Genovio recommends people to take a look at on racism on our website, www.ourcontext.org. You can also find the transcript of this episode on our website in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi and Hashagar Racism. See you next month on June 1st. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Introductory score by Luca Nioi. 
Other music by Pete Morris, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. A big thank you to Genovio for his time and energy in going down memory lane for us and sharing with us important and thought-provoking reflections on this issue.